Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Warney, and joining me on the line, as always, is Ethan Sachs. Ethan, you are bringing so much good into my life, I don't even know what's more important. The return <laughs> of Come On In Survivors, your survivor recap and analysis podcast, or just hard-carrying Team Lords of Limited in the Team Resources and Team Lords of Limited showdown. You 3 owed the pod. I don't know what you're doing more for me, Survivor or just carrying. Look, I bring I bring a lot to the table, Ben. You you can you can take your pick. Why not both? You can just uh, just bask in the glory that is my friendship with you. You know, <laughs> it's a nice glow. It's a very warm, <laughs> comforting glow. What a what a full weekend of of magical, or if we want to expand to the week of just a full week of strategy based content. We have the premiere of Survivor season forty four. We have my premiere of uh, season forty four of my podcast. We had the Lords versus Resources twelfth showdown. That is crazy that we've done twelve of them. I feel like as those numbers tick up and up and up. Hopefully they keep wanting to do them with us, but as the number ticks up and up, it's just hard to keep track of. And we had the uh, arena open this weekend, which you and I just completed our day two draft of, but haven't played any rounds of. How you feeling? I'm feeling pretty good about my deck. I'm repping the podcast hard, put my money where my mouth is. I have six Eye of Malkators in my in my deck. You love to see it. You love to eye uh, it. Uh? You love to eye it. Uh, uh. <laughs> yeah, I had. Uh, I was going down a path of, and maybe we'll we'll see how we have time for uh, this at the end of the show today. We got quite a lot jammed into the episode, but had a tough draft where I navigated myself in pack one into a good version of a bad deck. As I uh, was was telling someone else on Discord, um, I was getting myself into a blue red oil deck, and then hard pivot pack two pick one to the wanderer so got that bomb lucky me better lucky than good as ben said and then <laughs> and then just drafted a deck that i've i've never quite had before which is a just full-on jess guy control deck and we'll see this is weirdly my maiden voyage in best of three in this format can you believe that that is hard for me to believe it's return home yeah it's return home for me so hopefully hopefully it won't feel quite so far in um after having done many many drafts of best of one i often don't feel like it's a lot different you know i was nervous because you were saying playables dry up quickly and that you know checks out in the sense of i think that's the data bears that out of you know best of three drafters are usually good and then because of how matchmaking works you don't often face you know tough competition for all three rounds but luckily i didn't feel like that was super the case but there were i would say clearer signals and and like i said maybe we'll get to that when we look at my draft how how, how was your four into best of three this week it was good i felt completely different about doing the best of three drafts compared to best of one honestly was having less fun in the format because mm. it was a lot harder to get a good deck i feel like every time i queue into best of one i have the ability to end up with a very good tight deck and mm -hmm. in best of three, I was scrapping for playables. I felt like reading the wheel was way more important. Just like picking up on small signals, actually being true signals in best of three yeah. and being willing to trust that a little bit more than just, you know, in best of one, usually if I'm 
close to a pretty good deck, I just assume, well, I'll pick up some other cards to fill out my deck. That was not necessarily the case in best of three, where I was just expecting to be able to hold on tight because I had a good start to a draft. I, I really missed out on some signals on the wheel. And I think trusting that was was important. And I don't think I would have ended up where I ended up today had I not practiced those best of three drafts. So I'm glad I did. Yeah, you did move off of your first couple picks. And I, I really loved your pivot into the I deck and pick five as I was looking over your draft before we we fired up the show here. Um, yeah, I, I totally agree with that sentiment. I think the word trust is what I'll latch on to there from what you were talking about of like, I often don't trust best of one drafters. I'm <laughs> just like, I'm like, is this really a signal? Because like, you know, I'll, I'll feel so smart of like, ah, I notice a red common is missing here. So I shall move into this. And then like the next pick, there'll be a hex gold slash. And I'm like, okay, what, it, what who's who's messing around here? Who's who's <laughs> AFK, you know? Yeah. But I agree. I do definitely trust the best of three drafters more. Okay, we have, like I said, a jam packed show for you. Lots to cover today. So let's get into our housekeeping and then get into the episode. First things first, is the Patreon page. Patreon.com slash Lords of Limited is where folks can go to get back to the show if they so choose. Got a lot of sweet perks over at the Patreon page. Get access to the Lords of Limited Discord. Get access to our show notes. You could just make a podcast of your own. You could just get the jump on us. You could look at our show notes, you know, subscribe <laughs> to the Patreon, look at our show notes, record your own podcast on Saturday, on Sunday, whatever. Just get it out there. Just get the jump. I don't know. I'm just saying you could do it. Um, if you want to subscribe to that Patreon tier, you could get access to the show a day early. Um, get that into your earbuds. I just need that fix on Sunday rather than Monday. And then all the way up the reward tier rankings on Patreon, you get access to monthly coaching sessions with me or Ben. If any or all of that sounds of interest to you, that's the place to go for all that good stuff. And we, of course, want to shout out our new patrons the first week that they join. And this week, we are welcoming Ian, Battlesloth, Sam, Diego, Lewis, Jordan, Drew, DJ, Squisher, Trevor, Avlian, and Dan, thank you, thank you, thank you. We really appreciate your support. Yeah, I cannot say thank you enough. The people really want to know, when is the Patreon coming out for Come On and Survivors? <laughs> because one of the people on this call would be your biggest patron and really needs access to the episodes before Friday morning. Just that, that immediate watching of Survivor and then listening on Thursday. That's what I'm after. Here, here's what we need more than a Patreon. We need to get... Charlie and I early episode access. So like he and I can watch it on Tuesday, record the episode, and then it's just we release it like right after it airs on Wednesday night, you know? I'm listen, I'm in. I'll call up Jeff Probst. <laughs> okay. And for the you. for the hundred people that are listening that this is relevant for, if you're not watching Survivor, you should be watching Survivor and listening to Ethan's podcast. I say that as someone who Ethan has tried to get you me into. You were so skeptical. Yeah, Ethan has tried to get me into other things. He's tried to get me to watch I Think You Should Leave, and I hated it. This is not me, like, fanboying for Ethan. I genuinely have fallen in love with Survivor because of Ethan and his podcast and how analytically and strategically they approach it. It's just great reality TV. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Show is also brought to you by TCG Player, tcgplayer.com, best place to go for anything and everything you need on the internet that is magic-related. TCG Player subscriptions are $6.99 a month, and they get you a bunch of stuff, free shipping and tracking on all your orders, some extra bonus bucks, which is essentially store credit on your purchases, and most importantly, access to the CFB Pro articles that you, me, Alex, are writing each and every week, along with a host of other pros. We're putting out content about Phyrexia All Will Be One, as well as I'm sure we're going to be touching on Shadows Over Innistrad Remastered. That's going to be coming out soon. And if you're doing any shopping at TCG Player, whether that's 
signing up for a subscription or maybe purchasing some Frexia All We One sealed product to draft with some friends down the road, please be sure to use our affiliate link. You can get there by going to lordsoflimited.com slash TCG player. That'll redirect you to their website. And then any purchases you make will help out our show. Boom. All right. So today, you know, we've done some gameplay episodes in the past. We've done what's the play episodes in the past. This time we're going to try a different approach with one is not zero. We're going to do gameplay, but sort of a grab bag of different things that happen, different in-game decisions in a broader sense. I mean, specific in terms of cards, but not so specific in terms of, hey, try and wrap your head around this board state. And I think maybe even if not one is not zero in this format, sometimes nine is not 10. Nine is not 10. And that was definitely the case for me against LSV and the Lords versus Resources showdown. Never have I ever had a tighter match, I think, in those showdowns than against him. Um, Like really, really close games, I think all three games, honestly. Um, And the last game against him came down to, I was at nine poison, just quite closely navigating, sniped one of his pestilent siphoners as he swung both of them in for lethal poison, sniped one of them with a volt charge, and then was able to crack back for lethal. Oof. That wasn't my only victory that day, Ben. That was not. You ran the tables. Yeah, my, my sec back-to-back 3-0s. I 3-0'd the bro showdown and 3-0'd the one showdown. So just formats that people hate, I thrive. And that's, <laughs> uh, that's how I roll. Well, and your draft was super interesting too, right? Didn't you pivot into green pack two? Yeah, it was a tough draft. I wasn't like really sure I was bopping around. I think I took a prophetic prism pick three because I was already sort of feeling like this draft seems like it's going to be a hot mess for me. And then I saw Zapandrel pack two, pick one. That's the seven mana Dominus. It's the four, six with reach, doubles your creature's power and toughness each combat and can be indestructible if you uh, sack two things. I I was like, you know, in a normal draft, I don't care about seven drops. I'm I'm off of Kaya. I took a Black Belly Rat over a Kaya in a black-white deck that I did for a CFB, and I stand by that decision. Seven mana is a lot in this format, but I was like going back and forth, and I let the timer tick all the way down, and I finally took Zapandrel, and thankfully, green ended up being open. You know, we don't do collated packs as per the request of team resources. You know, you can turn those on on the draft simulator that we do on the Heroku app, um, but we don't do that. And so just green wasn't really present in pack one, but then I got a pack two, pick six, Vorak, two more Voraks in pack three, two evolving adaptives. And what went from feeling like a messy, I guess I'm red, blue, maybe splashing black for a few things turned to, oh, I guess I'm red, green now. And basically picking up all of my green cards in pack three and ended up being the only person to run green in their final deck. Yeah, that seems great for our team. Yeah, it was great. And I had I had close matches. I believe I went to three games against all three of Team Resources players, but managed to get the W in all three. And that brings us up to we're only down seven to five <laughs> in, Easy. Uh, in showdowns, which I mean, honestly, when we were down seven to three, feels a lot better to look at seven to five. That's close. Yes, much more respectable on our end. And uh, how about you? How was your draft? You had a, a more straightforward, I would say, draft seat. Yeah, my draft was fairly straightforward. I first picked a black card and then got past two great black cards. Yeah. So locked in black pretty early and then paired white along with it. And I actually ended up drafting black white underneath LSV, which is about the worst thing you can possibly do <laughs> in team draft. But mm-hmm. my deck ended up quite good. I was very happy with how my deck Ended up played some games against Marshall and BK where I lost to I got Mastercord and Dominus by Marshall got Mastercord again by BK. Yeah, Um, had some really tight games against BK that I I possibly could have won with some tighter play. 
Um, and then my games against LSV, he just got horrifically land screwed and we, we didn't really play games of magic they were not close to close when i beat him yeah and unfortunately alex had some technical difficulties so we didn't play out all three of his rounds he had to <laughs> ended up having to play against i think it was marshall on mobile while he was streaming he was just like looking down at his phone and announcing all the plays he was making to chat which is just hashtag good content just practicing for coverage baby that play by play role love that uh and so we emerged victorious at six and two games so not the full nine matches there and uh feeling good and we'll see them see them in a few months for the mom showdown for sure and how was your arena open day one you know we just recapped a little bit about our drafts going into day two hopefully we'll uh we'll be two thousand dollars richer next weekend but uh (laughs) how was day one for you Not great. I've somehow fallen into a weird mental relationship with the arena open day ones. They've just not been much fun for me. And I don't know what the answer is because I'm very competitive about it and I want to do well, which is why I don't stream it. So I feel like I'm giving up some equity by streaming where, you know, someone could snipe me at six and three. And I know if something like that happened, I would be beyond tilted, like just wouldn't be able to handle it, which is why I don't. But that amount of equity that I'm giving up if somebody does that is probably worth not having to do it by myself because I just it's not been fun at all losing and I've lost a lot in the last several of them you know it's been tough to try to qualify so Mm -hmm. I've just been sitting in front of my computer feeling sorry for myself like trying over and over again to queue and I, I could set limits on bullets but as a content creator that feels weird like I feel like I should be trying my hardest to qualify so that we have content for the podcast and things like that um, so I thought I was going to get done early. I had a, an unplayable pool that I dropped with and then an insane pool that I went 6-0 with into 6-3, which felt terrible. No. Um, just And I had good hands. My opponents just had better hands. There were some insane decks that I played against those last three rounds. And then a couple other really bad pools. And then I ended up getting there on my fifth try. Uh, my older brother, Adam, rescued me over Discord and uh, we we played together and got, oh, nice. got there at seven and two, I think. Yeah. So we had a we were five, two, six, two, seven, two with a blue red oil deck. So I was glad to get over the hump in about five or six hours um, instead of you know having to play all day. But I, I need to figure out something for myself for the day ones to make them more enjoyable because it has not been the last couple times. Yeah, I like this for you. I mean, I think it's it's been great to see your your sort of evolution and you're sticking to your your New Year's resolution for your on-stream persona and I have no doubt that I think just, you know, reassessing or thinking about this the next time the arena open comes around of like, okay, how do I want to approach this? I think you'll do it. Yeah, I think what I need to do is just stream it from the get-go. Because what I told myself this weekend was I'm going to do one and if it doesn't go well, I'll stream. But then once I did the first one off stream, I was like, well, then I started having the same conversation mm. with myself. I think I just need to decide I'm streaming them and I'm playing magic for the day and I just need to approach it as I'm streaming. If I queue, great. If I don't, that's OK, too. Yeah. Yeah, I had only three runs, which it feels weird to say only with that. But I feel like I often have to rattle off a ton. I mean, certainly, I think it was in February was the the call time one. And I just just fired infinite bullets into that and it queued at 3am. And that was not a good move. But I feel a similar thing to you. I'm just like, the, the money doesn't like the money entry fee doesn't feel like that big of a deal for the upside of you know, the getting to draft at competitive stakes on day two for the shot at some some real cash prizes. Um, so I don't like to set a cap for myself on day one. Um, I luckily didn't have any, uh, you know, open and drop and, and reopen pools. I uh, went one and three with what I thought was a good looking like Grixis control deck with um, a Kaito and a Koth Planeswalker. 
Um, and then I had a like rare list black white deck that honestly performed pretty well, went four and three and then got up just the absolute nuts, black, white, pre-constructed <laughs> sealed pool with like <laughs> black twilight, white sun's twilight, uh, Rhea. That's the, the three, four with battle cry. Um, just like good removal curve. And even that <laughs> I, I started off two and two and I was like, oh my God, am I really like what you feel so bad when you're like, am I going to not queue with like what's absolutely going to be the best pool that i open and then even in game nine (laughs) playing for the qualification had to mulligan to five on the play but i felt good i shared my my keeper mull hands with you and you just snap were like no definitely a mulligan those are your four worst cards and you're missing a color you have to mulligan so felt good about that got there on the mull to five on the play and uh queued for day two love to see it all right we're gonna take a quick ad break and then we'll be back for the smorgasbord of gameplay decisions. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. So, Ben, it's been about two months into the new year. How is the new streaming persona treating you? It's been good. After doing a little reflecting on how I was acting on stream, which was honestly a bit childish, and receiving some feedback from our Discord, I feel like I've returned to a nice, healthy mental relationship with handling bad beats and just some of the variance that comes with magic. And as a result, I've been enjoying streaming way more. Yeah, if you've been wanting to level up your mental health in some way, therapy can be a great option for you. Like having a baby strapped to you when you battle team resources, it can give you that extra boost to 3-0 the draft. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All it takes is a brief questionnaire to match you with a licensed therapist. And it's easy to switch therapists at any time for no charge to you. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Lords today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot Lords. And now, back to the show. All right, so we have a ton of stuff to talk about here. And I think starting maybe big picture, sort of broad strokes, like archetype decisions or like thinking about your deck's game plan is right because deck building considerations, and we see a lot of this on stream with deck tech redemptions and all that stuff. Like we see a lot of folks struggling with these thoughts. So what are your broad strokes, deck building archetype decisions that you're thinking about? Well, I think first of all, you just have to put the right cards in your deck to be able to have good gameplay decisions or good gameplay experiences. So if you if you miss the deck building portion, you're gonna have a really bad time in the format. So there's a lot of rules in gameplay, but you need to make a deck that's capable of playing by the rules. And if your deck's not capable of doing that well, it's just gonna go roughly for you in the format. And I, I wish it weren't that constricting, but it is. And I think it's important to just accept that and either play by the rules, or maybe this isn't the format for you, which is also okay too. you know, maybe you do less drafts than normal, but it, it is definitely difficult to do sweet things in the format. And I, the first thing I would say if people are struggling with deck building or just are having a rough go in gameplay is that you need to make sure that you play cards that pull their own weight. This is very, very, very important in the format in my experience. So for example, a card like Trawler Drake, which is two and a blue for a zero zero. And it comes into play with an oil counter on it. Power and toughness equal to the number of oil counters on it. Whenever you cast a non-creature spell, you could add an oil counter and it's got flying. Coming into the format, I would have assumed that would have been a sweet build around card for an oil deck, premium, high pick, like very strong card. A big reason to do a proliferate style deck. Yes, absolutely. And it just isn't in the format because 
it doesn't pull its own weight and it needs a lot of other things to happen to be good. So it comes down on turn three as a one one flyer. And then on subsequent turns, you're trying to grow it to a three three maybe or a four four, let's say if you've got some proliferate synergies. Meanwhile, on turns four and five, your red opponents are just playing three three haste that bring a one one and a four five haste that can give another creature haste with no work at all. So Trawler Drake is just finicky and it, it looks like the type of magic card that would be great in most formats. But it's just not in this format because it doesn't intrinsically pull its own weight. Well, and also, I think it's important to tack on a thought about these cards that you have here. I couldn't agree more about Trawler Drake. But the more your opponents are playing by the rules, the worse these cards are, right? The more your opponents recognize how good Hexgold Slash is and by proxy how good Whisper of the Dross is, the more they can not only can they outpace this on subsequent turns with just raw stats with the cards you mentioned, but they can just get a huge mana advantage by sniping it with a one mana removal spell. Yeah. Same goes for Pestilent Siphoner, right? The one on a black one, one flyer with toxic one. It has a similar problem in that there are spots. And, and I think we should highlight this about Trawler Drake too. There are going to be spots in games where this card performs well, right? You're going to face these cards and feel like, man, this is snowballing out of control and I can't deal with it for sure. But then there are also going to be games. And I've had this experience on both sides of the battlefield where it comes down and immediately dies or it comes down and immediately gets blanked by an incisor glider. And you're like, oh, what the heck am I supposed to do? This was supposed to be the fuel for my whole game plan of getting them corrupted. And it just can't do that. Right. Well, both of them need things to happen and or they take a while to do the thing. Pestilent Siphoner comes down on two and it doesn't really give you the benefit until turn five without help from other cards, like as far as getting your opponent corrupted. And that's assuming it goes uncontested. And they also both suffer from the problem of while needing to take multiple turns to do the thing, your opponent has time to develop their own strategy. And then right before they're about to do the thing, snap off a removal spell at a critical point and mess up your whole game plan. Not only that, but they also play defense so poorly, right? You're on the back foot, you're on the draw. These two and three mana plays are not cutting it. Yes, completely agree. And compare those to something like Mandible Justiciar. One and a white, two, one. Whenever an artifact enters the battlefield under your control, it gets plus one, plus one, and it's got lifelink. If you would have told me at the start of the format that I would be picking Mandible Justiciar over both Pestilent Siphoner and Trawler Drake, I would have told you you were crazy, but I would be doing that quite happily in a pack one, pick one scenario right now. Mm -hmm. Mandible Drake just does everything you want on its own. It's a two drop. It's got lifelink, so it's going to be very good against some portion of the decks. And then it's also got synergy possibilities with other artifacts in blue white or even just self-contained within white there's a lot of artifacts that combo well with it yeah i mean i think just your your point here at the end here of you build a deck that doesn't play by the rules and we, we keep talking about this and hopefully we've outlined this enough but the rules of like streamlined archetypes synergistic you know cheap you have to be able to affect the board etc cetera, etc cetera. you know mulligan decisions that we'll get to in a little bit you're just going to have a bad time. You just like you're going you're leaving win rate equity on the table by just deciding, oh, I don't need to do that. I don't need to treat this format differently than other limited sets. And not we're not talking small amounts of win rate. It's difficult to win, period, <laughs> if you don't play the art by the rules, I think. I totally agree. There are lots of considerations. And we you know touched on this last week with the sort of secret gold cards of what decks, what style of decks might cause you to pick a card. And I think that even translates to deck building of, you know, when you're slotting in, okay, maybe you've got a really good core for a black, white toxic deck. Well, how are you going to support that? Maybe it got a little contested or, you know, you've got some fillerish or 
filler plus cards that you're thinking about, combat tricks come into play. And I feel like there's quite a few combat tricks in the format. And there's some contextual ones that I wanted to shout out or considerations I have, because I often will see people being like, you know, if I'm in a green, red oil deck, I'm trying to figure out what I want to do. And people go, well, what about Titanic growth? It's not really a card that's on my radar when I'm building a green, red oil deck. But if I'm in a toxic deck, if I'm in green, black, toxic, or green, white, toxic, Titanic growth is one in a green plus four, plus four until end of turn gets more interesting to me because, not because I think it's a great card or anything, but I anticipate my toxic decks wanting to push damage, wanting to make attacks that either are chump attacks in some way to get my opponent corrupted, to get my opponent poison counters. Um some way that I'm going to be pushing damage or making attacks that seem, you know, like freebies. Like even just you're so much more incentivized to attack with your 2-2 into their 1-3 in a toxic deck. And your opponent sort of has to call your bluff there no matter what. Even if they want their 1-3, if they want their incisor glider to live, they still probably have to block and be like, fingers crossed you don't have something. So you can often get them with a titanic growth. You know, offer immortality, I think, is the death touch indestructible trick. Again, that's the sort of 22nd, 23rd type card that I'll play in my black decks. Um, you know, obviously, complete devotion, I think, as we'll talk about a little later, that gets a pass. Like, that's better. Like, it's a synergistic, clearly synergistic card for the toxic decks as, you know, it, it draws a card and, and wins you combat. Doomblade draw a card. Um, but there's certainly combat tricks that I, I don't understand in the format. Yeah, I would say with regard to combat tricks in your decks, coming from primarily best of one drafting i haven't found that you really need to stoop to playing combat tricks a lot like i think if you've drafted well and you found the right lane usually you've just got a good synergistic deck with removal spells as your slots for your non-synergy pieces but i will say it it's felt different in best of three like have felt the need to find playable cards and certainly the narrative for the pt seemed to be you know aggressive combat tricks mattered a lot you know from the people that were commentating and that sort of stuff so I'm sure like when you're in more competitive pods, you're playing these cards more often. But in best of one, I haven't felt the need to play those types of cards that often. Yeah, I think that the exception for me in that spot, and I largely agree with you, is complete devotion for toxic decks. And I quite like free from flesh, depending on the kind of oil based deck I'm in. That's the single red plus two plus two two oil counters. You know, the, the more I care about oil, the more I certainly have those um, variable power and toughness cards like evolving adaptive that, you know, free from flesh is evolving adaptive's best best friend. I mean, I, ideally free from flesh would play great with trawler Drake too, but uh, you don't really want to end up in that spot. As I said earlier, I think blue red oil is, is one of the worst archetypes in the format. I, I, I should have shouted out serum cork chimera in your list of like cards you want to do the thing on their own like chimera looks like it should be like okay that's the build around that's the signpost uncommon but like it's so slow so slow four mana two four like comes down can you really engage that in combat if your opponent attacks with a three three are you blocking like not if you want it to live and then what are you doing like how quickly can you get the three oil counters on it I don't know, two turns later, it's just so slow. It's not going to do the thing that you want often enough. Right. Yes. Significantly worse than just something like Gitaxian Raptor that comes down a turn earlier right. and is more flexible on offense and defense. I have found I have a newfound love for Gitaxian Raptor this week. That's the the three mana one four flyer with three oil counters, and then you can remove an oil counter to give it plus one minus one. Like the amount of times that I felt like, oh, this can just swing in as a three mana, three or four powered flyer, and then just sits back and 
blanks so many attackers. It's not like, I, like I'm not again, I don't still don't feel like it's the best blue common because I don't think it's quite synergistic enough, but I have been impressed by it. And I do have quite a few in my day two arena <laughs> open <laughs> deck. So hopefully that'll uh, pull its weight. Yeah. Um, I want to, I want to talk to you about tap lands, the spheres and terramorphic expanse, because I have found a choke point between the two and I have found tap lands perhaps the most. I'm usually a big champion of yeah, run a, run some tap lands, whatever. It's not a big deal in limited. I have found myself resistant to that mentality a lot in these decks. What, what are your thoughts on the tap lands? Yeah, I think Terramorphic Expanse I'm always playing the first copy of and certainly the spicier you get like if you're splashing or running three colors you know, you're going to have to run multiple Terramorphic Expanses and you're probably doing so quite happily. I think if you are running multiple Terramorphic Expanses, that probably means you don't get to run any of the spheres, which mm-hmm. are the lands that sack to draw a card. And I think in best of one or, you know, an aggressive deck that wants to come down and curve out, I'm running max one sphere. If I a certain archetypes, I'll run two, but I think two is about my max. Uh, yeah, black green is a, a archetype that I often because I often don't want to cut lands in that deck. Um, and I, I'm curious what your thoughts are on, on land count. We, we sometimes talk about that, sometimes don't. I found myself running often 16 lands more often than not, and that it's an 8-8 split. And so or or whatever, 8-7 plus a terramorphic expanse. Shout out to I, I can't I don't know what's happened, but I have been incepted a little bit by the Dune Mover meme train this week it's not a meme it's i know it's not a meme it's a good card i get it yeah am i hearing golden egg award winner you are not hearing golden egg award winner but perhaps an honorable mention perhaps a runner-up the people have told me that i should stand firm perhaps a silver egg do you truly believe in your heart of hearts that it's more of a golden egg than barbed batterfist i do think i'm coming around to that yes well, it's, I think it depends how quickly we do the 50 takes episode, <laughs> how how much I'll be willing to budge on that or not. Because if if the trajectory of this week is any indication, I could see it. I could see it for sure. Yes. Um, yeah. We got but, uh, but yeah, so 16 lands, usually pretty even split, usually be, not because I'm so weighted evenly like throughout the distribution of my deck, but so weighted evenly in the early turns. Like I just look at my one drop and my two drop slot and I go oh, I've got such an even mix, or I always want to make sure I can cast these cards and these cards that I want that even split of uh, of those lands. Um, and I have just found like the amount of one drops in the format that are playable makes me really dislike the tap lands that much. So yeah, I'd say sometimes I'll play some spheres if I'm in like a black green deck, I need a little bit of velocity in those decks. Um, I'll play a sphere or two and I'm 17 lands in those decks. But if I'm if I'm in the 16 land range, I'm I'm not looking for those spheres. I agree. Yep. Okay. You've got some really excellent thoughts about some broad in-game decisions. First up being determining who is ahead or behind. Yeah. And I think acting accordingly also like sometimes it's so tempting in the format to be behind and think, well, I can't block. I've got a race. And I just don't know that that's necessarily right. So I think starting from the beginning, ideally, you're going to be ahead in games of Phyrexia Obi-Wan. The best cards are aggressive. It's way easier to leverage tricks when you're ahead. And it's way easier to leverage removal to your advantage when you're ahead. And so I think that starts with mulligans. And we're going to do a whole section on keeper mulligans. But you you can't keep sketchy hands in this format just as a broad starting sense. And one card just really doesn't matter that much. It's much more important to get out to a good start than it is to have one extra card because the cards are all so powerful. The commons are intrinsically powerful and they're good at ending games quickly. Well, And the games are not going long enough 
generally where one card matters, right? Like where that sort of war of attrition of resources and ah, I'm ahead by one. That's just not how these games are playing out. I, I would argue that's not really how games are playing out in general Unlimited. It's why I don't think the sphere lands being subpar or suboptimal or non-desirable in this format is particularly unique. You know, think back to the, the dual scry lands from Strixhaven. You're just like, yeah, if I get one, fine. But like these largely games are not, you know, being won or lost off the back of paying four mana and dumping in that into scry one at the end of your opponent's turn, you know? Yes. Usually my opponent cracking their sphere means I'm about to win the game and I feel pretty good. <laughs> and the best is when they're on like, you know, they're on five mana, they have three cards in hand and main phase, they crack a sphere. I'm just like fist pumping and dancing around the room. I I can't believe that that's what you're doing because I'm like so ready for the worst thing to happen, you know? Yeah. And so I think, you know, on this macro, who's ahead, who's behind, determining whether or not you're ahead and if you are ahead, how far ahead you are is so, so, so important. So I think it's possible to overextend or decide to race when you shouldn't. And I think you get punished for choosing wrong. Like there's so Mm. little room for error because the games are so tight. And I think trying to anticipate what your opponent's going to do is really important as well. So decks have really clear game plans, right? If your opponent plays Swamp Island, instantly I'm trying to protect myself from poison counters. And once I'm at like five to six poison counters, I'm trying to think, do I have one turn left? Do I have two turns left? Like I'm always trying to anticipate how many turns are left in the game. And I usually err on the side of it ending one turn sooner than I expect, you know? Mm -hmm. And so you can see what your opponent's game plan is. The decks are really defined and then try to use that to your advantage when you're in the game. Well, and and Poison, I think, really puts such a fine point on this because, you know, I, I don't think it's fair to say that it like accelerates the games because, you know, your life total starts at 10 or whatever. I don't think that's quite right. But because of that poison race, because of the dynamic between your life total and, and your your poison count, I think that determining who's ahead, who's behind, counting backwards from zero or counting backwards from 10 as yourself for your opponent and for yourself from your opponent's perspective, those are the things that are going to make or break these close games. And that's how the games so often feel. It wasn't like my match against LSV in the showdown. Well, I was like, wow, what a crazy match for this format where I'm at nine poison, but I still win. That happens a lot yes. in this set. Yeah. Where like it's the difference of one half of a turn cycle, you know? Yes, I agree. And when you say counting backwards from zero, you're talking about like, okay, I can do five damage this turn. Okay, I can do five damage the next turn, that type of thing, right? Or, Mm -hmm. you know, they're at eight poison, I can push a poison this turn and I can push the poison. Like I tend to think about it in terms of turns that are left as opposed to counting. Yeah, whatever works for your head. I'm definitely thinking about that in terms of, okay, the damage race here is happening how. I almost punted with my nutso black-white deck yesterday where I left my self dead on upkeep because I cast a Skrelv's Hive because I got my opponent to Corrupted. Then I was like, oh, I'm going to want Lifelink next turn. Cast the Skrelv's Hive. And then I was like, oh, no. <laughs> I don't need to cast this right now because the game is going to be over. I don't need to get the one you know token next turn. What I need is to not take that one damage next turn because I was facing the Urbrask's Forge, the thing that was making the Trample token. And because I cast that, I needed to chump with a creature that turn to not put myself to one to subsequently put myself to zero. So it was a huge punt there, but that's just the kind of like very specific focus on the numbers that you need to be doing 
because that's just like that one little click is the difference between winning or losing. Right. And however you're calculating it, the important thing is to know how many turns you expect to be left in the game. Correct. And I think so getting back on the offense defense line, if you're behind, you have to play defense. I think like just trying to race when you're expecting to lose the race is just a bad plan. So yeah, it feels bad blocking, but I think you should just be blocking pretty aggressively when you're behind either try to protect your poison your life total or your actual life total. And sometimes that means you know your opponent has complete devotion and you block and they get a two for one you with complete devotion. The difference in a card is not that big of a deal in this format. If you're behind, you have to play in the combat tricks and that's okay. I think the only time I'm not trying to play around combat tricks is if I know on a subsequent turn, I can set up a blowout with instant speed removal. Otherwise, if I'm behind, I'm blocking. And sometimes they're going to have it, and that's okay. And sometimes they don't, and you feel great about blocking. You feel like a champ. But I think when you're behind, in general, you should be a calling station in this format. Because what happens <laughs> if you don't block is, like, let's say your opponent has, you know, a blight belly rat or whatever, and you've got a 1-3, and you expect they've got complete devotion. You don't block. You take a poison and then they get to spend their turn playing another toxic creature. And then the next turn you're facing down two toxic creatures and your opponent still has complete devotion in hand, right? Like you just have to get combat tricks out of your opponent's hand. I think when you're behind. I mean, Blightbelly Rat is such a great example because it the difference between that card dying and your opponent having no poison counters and the difference between that card dying and still, you know, if you just think about poison as two damage, Right. That card dying and dealing two to you, two, two points of unhealable damage, right? Because no way to remove poison counters. Um, it, it's such a huge difference there. I totally agree. And I, I am constantly, constantly cycling between the kinds of tricks my opponent could have, right? So Blazing Crescendo versus Free From Flesh. And if there's a even slight difference of blocking, Complete Devotion is a great way to think about this too. If there's a slight difference of, okay, the damage doesn't really matter. I could block this Porcelain Zealot or I could block this other card that has Toxic. Let me just err on the side of blocking the Porcelain Zealot. So if they do have Complete Devotion, they don't get the card. I mean, what Ben is saying about you know them getting the card not mattering is largely true. But I think if you can make some tiebreakers there of like, okay, if they do they have Free From Flesh or Blazing Crescendo here? Well, if it's Free From Flesh, I would rather the oil be on this creature rather than this creature. Like those kinds of small thought processes is really, if you're not thinking about that, you want to be thinking about that. Yes. And I think when you're behind, if you're blocking, cards with higher power are going to block way better against tricks. And this is yeah. one of the reasons why Gataxian Raptor is so good as a mm -hmm. defender, because it's a 1-4. So it blocks all the 3-3s three running around. It blocks the 2-2s two running around. It blocks Pestilence Siphoner in the air. It blocks everything. But the other thing it does that's hidden that you know, it's not obvious until you've played with and against the card a lot is that if your opponent tries to force through it with a trick, you just turn it into a four powered creature and trade. <laughs> so I'm almost hesitant. You'd mentioned like you can, you know, force in three damage earlier and then it sits back as a one four blocker, which is great. I like keeping the oil on it because once there's oil on it, it essentially says your opponent's can't force through creatures with combat tricks because when they try to pump their thing, you can turn it into a four power creature and still trade, you know, with a two two or a a 3-3 three, three that's gotten plus 3 plus 1 or whatever. So your opponent almost has to two-for-one themselves with a trick when you're blocking with high-powered creatures. I think it's another reason that Testament Bearer has gone quite a bit up in people's estimation lately. That's the, the three to black four one that when it dies, you get to look at three, put one in your hand, and the rest in your graveyard. Those, those high-power blockers really make tricks significantly worse. 
Yeah, no, I think that's totally fair. And that's all just about like, what is the, you know, the tempo of the game? How is it playing out? Where What's your position in it? Do you feel like you can get an attack in? Do you have proliferate in your deck? Do you need to leave an oil counter on the Raptor? All that stuff. Those are their questions. And we'll get to that, the proliferate thoughts a little later. Um, but, I, but I totally agree with you. I mean, I, I had an awesome game earlier this morning where I just read my opponent for Hex Gold Slash early because of the arena pause. And so I just chipped in with the Raptor as a 2-3 every turn as they left up one red mana. I was like, oh, I see. I see what you're trying to do here. And you're not going to get me. <laughs> Yeah, feels good. And, you know, we're talking about ahead, behind. All this stuff doesn't matter if you haven't built a deck that can get ahead or that can turn the tempo of the game around, right? So you really need to come with the cards to play if if you want the stuff we're talking about this episode to matter. I know we we largely talk about commons and uncommons because we're a limited podcast. I think in this format, it is important to shout out both White Sun's Twilight and the Wandering Emperor um, as rares that drastically change the tempo of the game, that drastically punish you for overextending, that I have, you know, sometimes you can just sort of chalk it up to, oh, I'm never beating that card. But I have also really kicked myself for, man, I I just was so like, I was doing my thing and I was curving out and they were stumbling. How sick is this? (laughs) And then they land the Eternal Wanderer and I go, oh, I didn't need to play that last creature. Like, I could have, I, if I was actually thinking about what was happening over there and noticing that my opponent had planes, planes, or that maybe they've got a sketchy mana base, right? Maybe that maybe they led on swamp, swamp, forest, planes, planes, and I'm like, oh, what's what's a way they could get back in this game? Oh, it's one of those cards. Like, I really think those should be on your radar specifically um, against white opponents who are maybe not affecting the board. And if you can, and this is only, of course, if you can afford to play around it, to not overextend into those cards, you may be able to, you know, reward yourself by going, okay, actually, if I hold this, then I've got something that can attack the Eternal Wanderer on the following turn, or I've got something that can then block the mites from the White Sun's Twilight, you know? Yeah, for sure. All right, I want to talk to you about the Great Poison question, because you alluded to this slightly about, like, against a blue-black player, if I see my opponent go Swamp Island, I'm, I'm really, really thinking about, certainly once you get into that five or six poison range, I'm like, okay, how many turns do I have left? But that's a, a deck where I'm really I'm really trying to not get the first poison counter because I know how well that deck can operate on the proliferate plan. Well, yes. And one of the things the blue black deck does best is bait you into racing and <laughs> thinking that you can win the race. And then they're like, oops, just kidding. Here's three poison counters. <laughs> right. No, totally agree. Against black white, if I, if I see swamp planes, I'm less concerned about the proliferate life, but I am very concerned about getting corrupted. So maybe I'll let them, you know, give me the first poison counter. Maybe I'll let them give me the second poison counter, but I'm really trying hard to not let them get that third one on if I can afford it, if that's how the game is playing out. Right. Well, and blight belly rat too, you'd mentioned it Mm -hmm. earlier, but even against black white, if their first play is blight belly rat, I'm again trying hard to stop the first poison counter, right? Because once you get the first one, you're so close to corrupted once blight belly rats on the battlefield. Correct. And then other archetype considerations like let's say black green or green white, I'm a little more lenient because I know that those decks don't have to operate so hard on corrupted and don't have to operate so hard on getting me to 10 poison counters. They can be more of a, a good card, good stuff deck. They can be more of a beatdown deck. So I'm a little less concerned. I might say, all right, look, if you happen to have a ton of corrupted payoffs in your deck, 
good for you. But otherwise, I might just ignore this pestilent siphoner against a black green deck, you know? Yeah, no, I think that's totally fair. I do think the exception is sometimes in black decks, like gulping scrap trap, aka uh, Miri's Outrider. I think. <laughs> I think we both agreed on that analysis or that uh, analogy last week. Um, can be a, a huge problem. Like that comes down, you're at eight poison or whatever, and you're like, okay, so now what do I do? Am I, am I just letting this hit me for four every turn? Am I starting to chump but not trade with it? There, there's been weird spots where I've that have come up with. I want to not trade with a kind of card, Scrap Trap being one. I had this really interesting spot playing against Cacophony Scamp the other day where I read my opponent for Titanic Growth. And so I didn't remove a counter from Lattice Blade Mantis to make it a 5-4 so that if they wanted to block and use their trick, that my creatures wouldn't trade. So then they wouldn't be able to deal five to something else, (laughs) which is just like, there's just such weird little math things about power and toughness and trading or not trading or chumping in the format that just keep, you know, keep impressing me, honestly, in the in that, like, there's fun little puzzles to solve in every game. Yes, I think the gameplay is great when both people are able to play by the rules and get on board early and stuff like that. There's just a lot of exciting scenarios that come up. And I think even in addition to these poison questions, just against all of the decks in the format, you should be trying to think how your opponent's planning to win and just do what you can to stop that. Like, use your removal accordingly to try to stop your opponent from how they're planning to win. And usually that means, I think, firing your removal off early and often. Isn't that crazy? Like, we all, you know, usually you're like, oh, I can take this damage or whatever, but the snowball effect of this format, I think, does dictate that you want to fire off your removal earlier more often than not. And I think, you know, you keep talking about anticipating or thinking about how the game is going to play out. You know, we're talking about poison counters here. I think talking about haste in the format is really important too. When you feel like you're racing, you know, the difference between leaving back that 1-1 one, one goblin from your chimney rabble or not is huge if your opponent is red or not. Do you anticipate a hasty chimney rabble from them? Do you anticipate a furnace strider from them that you're going to need to chump? Or are they not in red and you go, all right, well, if you have Tyrannic's atrocity, good for you, but I'm not going to play around that. But maybe you should be, you know, like maybe like how far ahead or behind are you where you want to be thinking about those kinds of niche cards, you know? my opponents on black white we keep talking about tricks i'll play around complete devotion way more than i play around the the death touch indestructible trick but if i like think they're you know if i can afford to i'm gonna think about both but i assume people are playing the complete devotion way more than they play the other one yes i agree and you know speaking of playing around things we've got a whole section down later in our show notes of stuff like this you've mentioned creatures with haste like if your opponent's red you just need to assume that they have chimney rabbles and furnace striders and how that's going to dictate what's happening in future turns about who's going to be ahead or behind. Like, are they going to be able to turn around the tempo of the game if they have Chimney Rebels and Furnace Striders? Are they playing in a way that suggests they have that card? If so, you should assume they have it if they're red. Like, you're going <laughs> to be playing against those cards. And I think another big one for red is Hazardous Blast. So if your opponent's yeah. playing red and the board is stalling out, you really need to try to force trades so that you don't just die to Hazardous Blast, right? That's a more common thing that's happening in games as people are getting better in the format. You know, you play your dudes, you trade, you play your dudes, you trade, and eventually nobody's got really profitable attacks and the boards build out. But if your opponent has hazardous blast, they're thrilled about that. You should not be. Sometimes you just need to try to force some trades to not die to your opponent's hazardous blast. If the board is stalling out and your opponent has mountains and you are not constantly adding up the power on their board (laughs) and subtracting that from your life total to see, okay, how like, Am I dead next turn? Am I dead next turn to Hazardous Blast? Like, 
you're leaving equity on the table again. Yep. Chrome Prowler is another one. I mean, this one's a little more obvious, but Chrome Prowler exists as a card. Don't attack, you know, one powered things into your opponent's three open mana if they're blue. And if they've got Eye of Malkators, be aware that they can turn them on on blocks with a Chrome Prowler flashing it in as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's a big one. And I think as Chrome Prowler sort of proven itself to be, I think, just good, certainly good in, in, in synergy based decks. But, you know, that that is a, a card that can help catch you up a little bit in terms of tap down a thing. Then do you want to attack into it and trade whatever? But yeah, like it's just absolutely devastating when your opponent just decides, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll attack in with my Rustvine Cultivator. It's already got an oil counter on it. Oops. Howmph. Yeah. And I think just the last one to talk about when you're playing around stuff is removal. I think everybody's packing removal. And again, this is like, if you're ahead, how far ahead are you? Does that change if your opponent's got a removal spell or two as far as, you know, racing and things like that? But just how your plays are going to be affected by your opponent's ability to interact. And so often a thing that comes up on turn four is deciding between Chimney Rabble and Lattice Blade Mantis, right? Like mm. Chimney Rabble's a little more defensive, honestly, it, despite having haste, because it leaves the one-one blocker behind. It's just so much less vulnerable to removal than Lattice Blade Mantis. But Lattice Blade Mantis is going to crack in harder. Like Lattice Blade Mantis is almost the more aggressive play because you're playing it and assuming that it's going to live, and then being able to attack in as a five-four, also playing Chimney Rabble the following turn, right? But if you do it in the opposite order, it's way more conservative. But just small decisions like that all the time come up, especially in red green about how you're going to sequence your creatures and which ones are better at putting max pressure on and which ones are better at kind of hedging your bets a little bit. Like you can put a little bit of pressure while also still having some wiggle room if your opponent's got interaction. I've also had the sequencing question come up of Furnace Strider on five versus Cinder Slash Ravager on five. And like the the sort of like face up thing as well, you play your Furnace Strider. Now it's going to be a hasty four or five. Then you play your Ravager next turn, you give it haste. And now you're attacking with two subsequent haste creatures. But like, how important is the one damage from the Ravager this turn? How likely is your thing with an oil counter on it to live for you to be able to then play the Ravager next turn for the same cost? You know, like these things come up and and you can really like get yourself into a bind if you suddenly are like, oh no, the Ravager is more expensive than I thought because I wasn't paying attention to those little small details on the board. Right. And I think that is one of the cool things that I do like about the format is those decisions matter. They matter a lot because the games are so tight. Yeah, for sure. There's a lot of sequencing stuff that comes up in this format. First thing that I wanted to shout out, just a lot of stuff with like specific cards. One is I have Malkator on turn three. I've had this a lot of times, like you have Eye of Malkator, and certainly if that is your deck's game plan, you've got three, four, or five. If you're Ben's Day 2 Arena Open deck, you've got six. <laughs> Do you play the next Eye of Malkator on turn four and leave a mana stranded? Do you then play your Cephalopod Sentry or your Tamiyo's Immobilizer? And maybe that's a little bit more of a defensive play, and then you try and chain together stuff later. Like It obviously depends on a lot of details in the game, but it's not just clear like, oh, I have an eye on three. I just start chaining those together. Sometimes that's right. Sometimes being more mana efficient is better. Sometimes getting a blocker down is better. But sometimes that blocker being put down gives them a window to kill that blocker and swing the tempo back in their favor so that subsequent eyes are now worse for you, you know? Yeah, there's a lot. I I have Malkador is definitely a dangerous one. 
<laughs> Lattice Blade Mantis is another one that comes up. Just when to remove a counter from that card. And again, figuring out how many turns are left in the game, figuring out maybe you want to leave a counter on it if you've got Proliferate. Is it going to change how your opponent blocks? Do you need it back as a blocker? There's just all kinds of interactions that come up with Lattice Blade Mantis. I want to talk about Skull Bombs because I think there's a wide range of opinions about all of these cards. Maybe we should have put this back in deck building a little bit because I have a, a, a pretty clear thought in my mind about when I like these cards. So the, the blue skull bomb I think is, is still in my mind, blue's best common though. You don't have to draft it like it is. Um, it gives blue that like can't tripping way to interact um, and synergy in the artifact decks. And so I'm often running as, as many of those as I can get in my blue decks, depending on what kind of a deck it is. The next one for me is the red one, the furnace skull bomb. Because sometimes, again, sort of thinking of it like free from flesh, you know, if I'm in those sort of non-creature based matters, oil matters kinds of decks, the the blue, red, the teamer kind of decks, sometimes red, green as well, I'll like playing that. Draw Skull Bomb, the black one, I usually like one of in my black, green decks, maybe my black, white decks that have a bomb in them, whatever. And then I'm basically hoping to never play the white or the green one. Like maybe white if I'm like in mono white and need playables or in blue white and just like need one more artifact. But the green one for sure, I'm hoping to never play. I think the white one's okay in the artifacts deck if you mm. don't have blue ones or whatever. But yeah, I agree. Yeah. The skull bombs are generally not great outside of the blue one. I think important to, to recognize when they do have a home. And I've definitely had people ask specifically because the blue and the red ones are the ones I play the most, certainly the blue one, of like, do you ever hold it on turn one? Like, let's say you've got Icar Synthesizer in your hand. You know, do you hold the skull bomb to get that counter? Or let's say you know that you do have those cards in your deck. You've got Eye of Malkators that you may want to trigger. You've got those synthesizers or whatever in your deck that you want to get oil counters on from non-creature spells. Do you hold them? My general stance is no, honestly. And like, or like, do you hold the blue skull bomb so your opponent doesn't know that you have it? Generally, no. I'm like the, the default should be if you have a way to use your mana, you have to have a really good reason to not do it. Yes, I agree. Because mana efficiency is so important in this format. And if that's the small advantage you get from getting an oil counter on something that cares about a non-creature spell is so much less impactful than not being able to activate your blue skull bomb because you choked yourself on mana accidentally. Mm -hmm. This next one is, is one I've, I've really started doing over the past week or two, which is leaving oil counters on cards if you have proliferate. Like realizing that removing that last counter from Axiom Engraver to Rummage or making the last Golem with Incubation Sack is not always correct. Because if you've got a, a, a lot of ways to proliferate in your deck and you don't need to make that 3-3 right now, if you don't need to Rummage away a card right now, you may regret it because you don't have a way to put oil on the thing, but you do have a way to add oil to those cards. Well, and especially if you've got cards that care about permanents having oil on them as well. Well, that's a great segue into the next point about the oil matters triggers from cards like Urabrask's Anointer or Oil Gorger Troll. Like those cards ask you to be very mindful of not only removing the last oil counter from some permanents, but also about trading off cards that have oil counters on them. You know, do you know what I just read in the Lords of Limited Discord today? No. 
The filigree silex, where you remove 10 oil counters, it's from among permanents you control. I did not know that. I thought filigree silex had to have 10 oil counters on it. Ben reading rares in 2023, <laughs> still not still not happening. So you knew that? Yeah, I did know that. I thought that was a revelation. I thought this card had to have 10 oil counters on it. I don't read all the way to the bottom of rares. It's been well established at this point, but blew my mind. But it still still happens. Yeah, I, I still don't know how to. Is that card good still? It seems I'm, quite slow to me. I'm much more excited about it knowing that, like in a red green oil deck or something, or yeah, red blue sure. oil deck, like gets those Icker synthesizers that end up with eight oil counters on them. Someone did share with us a screenshot of them twentying their opponent with Soulfum, the the red Dominus that doubles uh, non combat damage from your uh, permanent. So pretty sick that that they got that. You um, love to see it. You love to see it. Speaking of oil, have you had? Tamiyo's Immobilizer versus Tamiyo's Immobilizer Wars. I have not had those wars, no. That's whoever's so, ahead wins the war, right? <laughs> well, the important thing to note here is that Tamiyo's Immobilizer taps creatures or artifacts. And so what you get to do, and this should be on your radar, especially, yes, and what you're saying is if you're ahead, but certainly if you're the first person to stick the Immobilizer, what you can choose to do is just lock down your opponent's Immobilizer with yours. So that then your best creature is still free to attack on your turn. So your immobilizer takes out your opponents. And I definitely had my opponents sort of miss that interaction. Like they have theirs first. I have mine second. They think they're still tapping my creatures. And I go, oh, no, no, no. This is now about, this is artifact on artifact hate now. This is not about, <laughs> this is not about creatures. So just make sure that that's uh, in your back pocket. Because being able to go tap the immobilizer then on my turn, tap your best blocker swing is a really good way to win a game. Yeah, that's like when there used to be good creature tappers, like creature tapper right. wars, whoever is ahead is significantly favored when both people have creature tappers. Correct. Have you had issues with sequencing your one drops in one drop heavy decks? Specifically red green, I would say, is where I end up with, you know, you could have eight one drops in those decks. Um, I, Not a ton, but I think... What's important and I have found myself thinking about is with one drops or two drops, like a lot of times you end up choked on one color, yes. right? So like maybe on turn three or turn four, depending on what you choose to play on turn one or turn two makes a difference in, you know, if you know you're going to have double green available to you, but not double red, like setting up a double spell on a future turn for turn three or turn four or turn five you know, without needing to draw a second color of a different mana. Yeah, or like, you know, just sort of snap running out my Rustfine Cultivator on one because I'm like, well, that's the one drop I want to snowball the most. I want to get that oil counter next. When it's like, oh, no, what I actually should have done was play my Evolving Adaptive first, or maybe that's not a great example, but play like something else first so that then I could double spell the following turn with a green and a red because, you know, I have a bunch of green one drops in my hand and only this one red one drop, you know? Yeah, it hasn't come up for me with one drop so specifically, but I would say the similar thing that has happened to me more is just being aware of which color of mana I'm choked on and trying to make sure I can still set up double spells if I can with the color of mana I'm not choked on. Uh, this is a throwback to a, an interesting discussion we had about a play that you had on your stream, but it's come up for me for sure, which is with Ambulatory Edifice. This is the two and a black three, two ETBs. You can pay two life to give a creature minus one, minus one until end of turn. I mean, obviously sniping X ones is great with this card. Finishing creatures off from combat is great in your second main phase, but there honestly might be sometimes when you are toxic, which your black decks often will be, when you want to be able to force through an attack, right? You don't want your opponent, you know, let's say you're attacking your Blight Belly Rat into their 2-3, and you're like, oh, I'll just finish it off 
post-combat with my edifice. Well, you actually may want to shrink their thing pre-combat and say, hey, you can chump if you want, but I'd rather just force through this poison counter now so that I get to set up my turns more effectively in the future. Yeah, that all makes perfect sense to me. Have you gotten to mess around with first strike and corrupted? Like having some attacks where let's say you've got the duelist of deep faith or the jawbone duelist and something like bone picker scourge. And so then that gets to connect with your opponent, give them the third counter. And all of a sudden your bone picker scourge still gets to be a death touch creature. I have not had that come up, mostly because I haven't played Toxic that much. I bet of however many drafts I've done, I bet 15% of them I've been playing Toxic. Wow. Get some Britney Spears in your <laughs> earbuds and, and draft some Toxic decks, my friend. Do, 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 do. <laughs> uh, Cacophony Scamp, a card that I love, a card that I was happy to see was also beloved by Team Resources in the showdown because I feel like it gets disrespected quite a bit in uh in the best of one cues, this is the single red uncommon. Uh, when it deals combat damage to a player, you can sack it if you do proliferate. And when it dies, it deals damage equal to its power to any target. You can do some sweet things with this. Death touch from Atraxa's Skitterfang. Ooh, I'm interested. Barb- Barbed Batterfist lets you build your own shock. I mean, certainly Volshock Splitter's best friend, making it a 3-1 that just is really tough to deal with in combat. But the, the death touch trick is is really, I and mean, obviously that's two uncommons, but just keeping your an eye out for that kind of thing is important. For sure. This is an uncommon, so maybe you have read all the way to the bottom here. Churning Reservoir, the single red uh, way to put an oil counter every turn on a non-token permanent you control or a non-token non-land permanent you control. And then if an oil counter is removed from a permanent you control or a creature with an oil counter died anywhere, leaves the battlefield anywhere, your side, your opponent's side, that lets you make a 1-1. I didn't know that. I didn't know that it triggered from your opponent's stuff leaving. No chance I would ever remember that in paper. I mean, on Arena, it lights up nicely for you. So I learned the first time it lit up (laughs) when my opponent's thing died. And I was like, oh, that's nice. Thank you, Arena. (laughs) And I'm sure there's more, you know, single card interaction things to think about. But those are just a handful that I feel like come up for me often enough that I wanted to shout them out. Yeah, that's awesome. This next section is just excellent. Cards that change the tempo of the game. This is a way that I never think about cards or that I would never think about cards. But when I see the list of them and I see you put a title on it, it's just like, yep, that's exactly what these are. And they're so, so important. Yeah, so important because one of the ways that you win games in this format is by turning the tempo around when your opponent's ahead or when you're ahead, figuring out how to not let your opponent turn the tempo of the game around so just a list of cards that are really good at doing it um crawling chorus a big one for white that's the single white one one that dies into a toxic might and it's just blanks a bunch of x ones it sort of is hex gold slash esque in that you know it lets you get on board early if your opponent's not doing anything great you get to corrupt them or get them some poison counters but when it gets in those early chip damage of poison counters it makes it so hard for the opponent to be aggressive later in the game because then you're always cracking in for more poison. And especially when you combine it with other cards that are toxic after you've gotten in those first hits, it blocks so well and makes it so difficult for your opponent to attack almost in a vampire spawn like way, which was the the two in a black two, three that drains Mm. two gains to like once you get ahead it's harder for your opponent to be aggressive. And then, you know, you've gotten in a couple toxic hits and then maybe you play a Basilica Shepherd, the the three white, white, three, three that makes two mites. And then all of a sudden it's even harder for your opponent to be aggressive. And so 
Stinging Hivemaster in black has the sort of the same effect as Crawling Chorus. That's the two black three three that dies. That's the two and a black three two that dies into a one one might. It's obviously a lot less good because it costs three mana, but similar uh, effects there. Well, and if you've backed up Hivemaster with a one or a two drop, it makes it a lot harder because your opponent goes, man, do I really want, if I attack into that, we trade. And then they get to attack me back with a 1-1 Might and get me a poison counter. And in those spots, the 1-1 Might acts as a 2-1, right? When it connects and gives your opponent a poison counter, again, that's that like two points of uncounterable damage or unremovable damage that we talked about and how you think about those poison counters. So yeah, Hive Master needs a little bit of work or a little bit of setup, but it, it definitely acts in a similar fashion when, when you do. And then cheap removal, Hexgold Slash, Whisper of the Dross, I think doing a, a good enough impression of Hexgold Slash, um, the single black for the instant, minus one, minus one, and proliferate. And then the other cheap removal, the stuff that costs two, is really good at setting up double spells to potentially try to turn the tempo of the game around, you know, on turn four, turn five, turn six. All of those things are critically important to have access to in the format. Just a note about Whisper of the Dross as a card I've, I've come up quite a bit on and I've been playing quite a bit the past couple weeks. Don't get greedy. Like there's so often times where I'm like, hmm, yes, I could snipe this Pestilence Siphoner now, but wouldn't it be great to get max value and proliferate in two turns with it? I, surely I can take a hit or two from the Siphoner. Wrong. Don't do it. Just take it out of the skies. Just get your you know tempo advantage from the one mana versus two mana. And don't worry about getting the maximum amount of value from your, your one mana trick. Yeah, this is not a value format. This is a tempo <laughs> format. For sure. Chimney Rabble, Furnace Strider, two great ones that we've already mentioned in red. I don't think I can say enough about Chimney Rabble's ability to play offense and defense. I was probably too low on the card early on in the format. I still don't think I'm quite as high on it as everyone else is. But one of the things I'm appreciating about it more and more the more I play with it is how well it plays both offense and defense. And Furnace Strider, to a lesser extent, plays offense crazy well. But Chimney Rabble pulling double duty is is super important, even though it's not a synergistic card. I got a suggestion from uh, one of the folks in my Discord about a, a way for us to award Chimney Rabble something and to start out with a sort of you know, not quite a golden egg, sort of the opposite of a golden egg award that Chimney Rabble will be receiving in the 50 takes. Ooh, I like it. Yeah. Annex Sentry, another one. I mean, this is uncommon and obviously busted, but it's easy to just say, yeah, Annex Sentry is great. It's more important to think about why Annex Sentry is great. Similarly to Gitaxian Raptor, like it's a three drop that comes down and just once it comes down, if your opponent was aggressive, they're no longer nearly as good at being aggressive unless they have hex gold slash to snap it off but i mean you can't ask for much more from a card that changes the tempo of the game than annex Sentry. totally agree and then lastly basilica shepherd i already mentioned this but i've played with this one a lot more recently and it it weirdly plays defense well despite the creatures at making not being blockers again because it makes it hard for your opponent to be super aggressive if you've already given them some poison counters Right. That's the weird thing is that like, it's so funny that Chimney Rabble, the one one is your blocker, is your defensive card. With Basilica Shepherd, the three three is your defensive card. <laughs> and because your opponent's like, well, do I really want to attack into that and then leave the way open for these two mites? No, not really. And so if you've if you've done the work, if you've leaned into white being, you know, a toxic, aggressive, kind of corrupted deck, then that's exactly how it plays out. And it plays out well. Yeah. I think that takes us to the next section of cards that I just think we should shout out because we haven't talked about them much on the show, but cards that are good at stabilizing and then leveraging 
an attrition battle. There's a lot of cards that are four mana-ish that do a really good job of two for one in your opponent. And assuming that you're playing the ones, twos, and three drops to go along with them, these four drops can have you be the person that ends up with gas when the dust settles. So Testament Bear is one that's gone up recently. That's the three and a black four one. Just a built-in two for one that can attack well, depending on the game state, but also blocks very, very well. Indoctrination Attendant as a three four that makes a one one might like similar effect to Basilica Shepherd and that makes a blocker and also kind of discourages your opponent from attacking with the toxic might that it creates the four Mirrodin cards if you're trading those off you know you're left with a piece of equipment that's going to make your future creatures just a little bit better than your opponents and then axiom engraver is another huge one and i think the the word is out on axiom engraver at this point but just has such a scrap work like effect on the game in terms of when you play axiom engraver you get on the board and then you're sure you're not going to flood and it also helps you hit land drops if you need to hit land drops. Well, and it also has like kind of keyword bad in that, you know, less less so with Incisor Glider where I'm like, eh, do I really want to block my glider against their, you know, Blight Belly Rat? Because maybe the glider is really important to me. Unless you're like stuck on lands or whatever. Axiom Graver isn't that important to you. So you also like can snap off blocks with it and be like, yeah, I'll trade with a trick, whatever. Sure, yeah, for sure. And I think Oil Gorger Troll also belongs in this category of cards. Just great as a two for one, gains you some life, that sort of thing. I would caution a little bit about playing this style of deck because I think you open yourself up to the bombs more, you know, if you're looking to stabilize and get to the late game without your own bombs. But sometimes you're going to need to draft this style of deck. And I think it's important to be aware of these cards and what they offer you in the format. So I think the last thing on this list we want to talk about is something we've touched on in weeks prior, which is keeper mulligan decisions, because the rules for that in this format are so much different. You know, so often we say, look for reasons to keep hands, not mulligan. You know, like what's good about the hand? Going down resources is so bad. You know, your win percentage plummets when you mulligan. You you just can't keep a lot of hands in this format. Or there are a lot more kinds of hands, I should say, that you can't keep in this format. Yes. I would say just to lay out the rules very clearly, on a play, you definitely have to affect the board by turn three with preferably a fairly substantial body, like something like a Contagious Vorak or something like that, if your first play is a three drop. Yeah, and that card is a really interesting line because play versus draw matters so much. Like Vorak as my first play of the game on the play, I'm okay with that. Vorak as my first play of the game on the draw, I'm less okay with that. Yeah, I think you're mulling hands like that. Yeah, like there are some kinds of cards that can catch you up, like Annex Century, right? That's an okay card. And fingers crossed they don't have Hex Gold Slash, but that can like provide a blocker plus remove an attacker as well. Like that's a a clear two for one in that sense. Um, But otherwise, I really, really think you need to affect the board on turn one or two on the draw and certainly one, two or three on the play. Yeah, one, two or three on the play, one one or two on the draw. And then the exception, I think, is what you mentioned, Annex Entry or something that some hand that would be absurdly good at catching up if your first play is on turn three and your opponent curves out well. But the other thing I think that's important to be aware of is I've also gotten punished pretty hard by keeping hands that are reactive on the play. Yes. If you have a hand that's got, you know, two or three removal spells and no way to pressure your opponent, like that's really dangerous too, because then all of a sudden you're just assuming that your removal lines up, which is not a great assumption. You know, some decks are really resilient to removal if your opponent has crawling choruses or things like that. There's just a lot of cards that are resilient. Well, you can also have hands where you're like swamp, swamp, whisper of the dross, anoint with affliction. And then like Basilica Shepherd, Basilica Shepherd or something like that. And you're like, yeah, I've got, you know, one color. I can do some stuff in the early turns. But it's like, 
Yeah, but then what are you hoping is going to happen? Once these first few turns, you know, peter out and you're forced no matter what to fire off these removal spells. And let's say Whisper of the Dross isn't relevant. Like let's say they don't play a Mandible Justiciar and they're in red green and Whisper of the Dross isn't actually that good against them. Like once that happens, you're both hoping for lands and spells and specific lands at that. I don't know. Seems a little dicey to me. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Basically, I want my opening hand to have affect the board early and have a reasonable game plan. And if it doesn't, I'm mulling it most of the time. Yeah, I think that's true. I'm just, I'm much more, um, and maybe it's because of the compacted nature of the games where I like, I really feel like my opening hand represents so much of the things I get to do that I am much more strict with myself or at, at my best, I'm strict with myself about, okay, do I really need to send this hand back? Does this enact my deck's game plan? As, as I had in game nine yesterday of the arena open day one, where I qualified my opening hand, I was on the play. I had, I had a way to affect the board on turn two, only had one color of mana and had my worst four cards in my opening hand. And I was like, I think I can do better. And then certainly once I had my second hand of three swamps, four white cards, I was like, oh no. What, <laughs> what did I just what do? I what done? have I done? Have, yeah. Right. Like, uh, I take it back. I take it back. But like, then my mold of five, I was able to just craft a game plan. Got a little lucky, obviously, with your top decks as you have to do when you mold of five. But, you know, being able to craft that game plan of like, I have a two drop, I have a, a cantrip and combat trick to back that up with, et cetera. You know, that's just going to lead to better games more often. Yeah. So the other, the other types of hands you want to think a lot about are hands that only have one color of mana and maybe one play of that color of mana, which I think generally I would keep in most formats, assuming that I'm going to get there on my second color at some point, And I can use that one card to, you know, buy me some time. You really can't afford to stumble in this format. So I would think long and hard about hands like that. And I generally err on the side of mulliganing them. And then also just hands that are functional, but have your worst cards, you know, kind of what you were alluding to in your arena open run. Yeah, for sure. Totally agree. I would say the one exception to that are decks that really need to hit land drops. Like if you've got cards that want you to get to six, seven mana, you know, you've got Mm. Eternal Wanderer, you've got those Blue Suns Twilights, the White Suns Twilights. Those decks don't mulligan quite as well because you really want to hit your land drops. Oh, something that I've noticed, this just just occurred to me as we're thinking about cards or decks that want to hit land drops. I've also noticed because Axiom Graver ends up in my deck so much, you know, certainly if I have another two drop or whatever, when you're mulliganing to six and you're putting a card back, Axiom Engraver often goes away for me because while yes, it's really, really good at, you know, finding stuff for you. And this is a certainly contextual, but on its face, like it's much less good when you're down resources. Yes, I completely agree with that. And certainly like whatever, sending back combat tricks, like you want to send back situational cards, you want to send back cards that aren't going to do the thing on their own that need help or whatever, you know, okay, you've got an Urbrask's anointer, but are you going to need to trade off your two drop with oil? And this is just a four mana four two, you know, those are the kinds of things you want to think about when you're mulliganing and what card you're putting back. All right. Lots of gameplay knowledge dropped. Boom. Any final thoughts before we go? No, I've given all of my thoughts. Good luck to you <laughs> in day two of the run. You better get that money, buddy. We'll see. I'm I'm hoping to be able to rep I have Malkator. Good luck to you as well. And good luck to everybody that's competing in day two today. For sure. All right. Great place to wrap us up. Thank you, as always, to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give it a listen. Thank you so much to TCG Player for sponsoring this podcast. If you're heading over there for any and all purchases, we're signing up for a TCG Player subscription to read our articles and check out the YouTube videos a few weeks in advance. 
please navigate yourself there via our affiliate link at lordsoflimited.com slash TCG player. You can check us out streaming. I'm at twitch.tv slash Lord Tupperware. Ben is at twitch.tv slash Mr. Metronome. Mr. is spelled out. We're both under those same usernames on Twitter, and you can tweet at the podcast at Lords of Limited. If you've got any feedback about the show or any questions, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. Thanks, everybody. See you later. All right, everyone, coming at you today with not a blooper and unfortunately not a, another uh, dramatic interpretation of a parody monologue written by a fan, but uh, for a little report about how the Arena Open Day 2 went, and I am happy to report that I got the Max 2K prize there. Uh, Blue-red deck, Splashing, Planar Disruption, and the Eternal Wanderer played out really, really well. Got the 4-0. Um, actually, it was funny enough, in, in one of the matches that I played, um, I played against a really good red-green deck with Thrun at the top of the curve. And I had uh, Blue Sun's Twilight in hand. I had gotten it back from uh, with a Meld Web Curator. And I was planning to snag one of my opponent's creatures the following turn. This was late in the game. And be able to copy it. But what I didn't put together was they had a 3-3, a 3-3, and a 2-2. And I was at 8. And the only way that I was going to lose that game was a Hazardous Blast. But I realized it a half turn too late. Um, I should have just fired off the Blue Sun's Twilight on one of their 3-3 tokens, but instead I got got by the Hazardous Blast. Luckily for me, they got uh, they got color screwed in Game 3, so I got the W there. Got the 4-0 with the Jeskai Control deck, and then just drafted a really nice green-white deck. Green-white Toxic deck, I guess I'd say, with uh, Triple Vorak as well in uh, in my second draft, going 4-1 there, getting the, the 2K. So happy to report that. Hope that uh, you all were successful out there, and it was a pretty darn good weekend of magic for me with the showdown and the arena open. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 